First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, the apostle says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This short paragraph, which is considered to be the heart of this epistle, in fact the heart of all the pastoral epistles, puts the instruction of all the pastorals into the proper perspective. Paul is hoping to visit Timothy very soon, but the possibility exists that he might delay. So he writes to describe how believers should conduct themselves with respect to the church. It's probable that Paul had already instructed Timothy about these things in the past, instructed him personally, verbally, but now he puts it in writing. Now, probably to add authority, or if we were to borrow a word from a couple election cycles ago, probably to add gravitas to, to, um, to Timothy's message and to his leadership. The reason that the church must accept Paul's teaching in this letter is that the church is the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and protector of the truth. As God's house, the church must protect the basic gospel message and basic gospel truths. And it's precisely at this point that it appears as though the Ephesian Ephesian church is failing. Um, If we reconstructed the situation at Ephesus from what Paul has said so far, it, it would appear that the leadership is less than virtuous, and the church's reputation and ability to work in the world is being seriously hampered, and this, Paul says, must stop. The mandate is not an optional one. It is a command. The church is the household of the living and the judging God. It must maintain its sanctity because of its essential function as a guardian or the guardian of the truth. When the church ceases to perform its function, God will act. One would have to be... I believe, almost intentionally blind regarding our current situation in the Christian community to fail to see that we are living in a time when the church as a whole is rapidly moving toward ceasing to perform the function for which it was designed. The church's function is worship, not entertainment. The church's responsibility is to fulfill the Great Commission, evangelizing the unbeliever and instructing the believer. Now, under normal conditions, the church functions to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means that local churches train their members how to present the gospel. And then those members go outside into their communities, to their neighbors, to their friends in the workplaces, and tell others about Jesus Christ. Under normal conditions, believers gather in a church. Believers worship. Believers are instructed. They're taught. We are all taught how to do the ministry. And then we go out into the world and do ministry, especially give the gospel. Because of some 
incredibly popular, but in my view, unscriptural teaching, this model of a church has been turned upside down. The model, the model that I just proclaimed to you, the, the model that's the biblical model, that the church is a place where believers gather to worship and learn and be instructed and be equipped for the work of the ministry. This model in today's culture has been turned upside down. In material that we studied last week, we saw that in order to be a member of the church universal, you needed to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every member of the church universal is a believer. That's how you got into the church in the first place. Now, not necessarily every member of a local church is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's designed to be that way. I ask you, if you're a member of Pine Valley, you were, I assume, asked before you join and when you filled out that membership form, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's one of the three essential questions that I ask you. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? I also ask you, are you in general agreement with the doctrinal statement as best as you understand it? And then the third thing I ask you was, are you willing in matters of the church to submit yourself to the leadership of the church? And all of you said yes. Now, some of you might have fooled me. It's possible, although it's not designed this way, it's possible that someone could be a member of the local church and not be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's not supposed to be that way. It is supposed the, the local church is designed to be occupied uh, by believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we gather together to glorify God, to worship Him, to pray to Him, to give, to, to sing, uh, all the things that we've talked about so many times. But in today's Christian culture, that model has been turned upside down. The church has become a center in, in many places, has become a center for evangelism, and the instruction of the saints, the equipping of the saints, has then been farmed out to, to other venues, perhaps home Bible studies or uh, uh, certain, uh, certain special functions within the local church where you have a certain number of days of instruction and then, then you move on about your way. Uh, but it's not part of the, the regular routine of the local church. The two men who are most responsible for this event appear by most outside accounts to be evangelists at the core. Uh, a very popular book called The Purpose Driven Church came out in the mid-90s. And The Purpose Driven Church was the, the, the first major volley across the bow toward for changing the way churches operate, at least in our culture. And this has been exported in many different places. The, the purpose-driven church and the whole seeker church movement seeks to have a different model in church. It, it seeks to have a model whereby the essential function on a Sunday morning is to pull people in through a, an attractive, entertaining, um, pleasing to a non-Christian worship service, but then that's almost oxymoronic because it's not a worship service. Only believers worship, but a service, and then the gospel is given. And one might say, how, how could you argue with that, Bruce? It seems like uh, maybe it's sour grapes. You upset that they have 20,000 members and you don't? I hope you know me better than that. I'm, I'm just trying to teach you the Word of God. And, and the Word of God portrays a model. But what happened is you had two, two men, and they're, they're well-known names. One is on the cover of a national magazine this week, so I guess you can use his name, uh, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, two fine men. 
two extremely fine men. I, 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 nothing wrong with their character whatsoever. They, they both are evangelists. And what it would appear as though they've done is that they recreated the model of the local church with regard to their own giftedness. Now, rather than go out and perform evangelism in, in settings where evangelism is ordained, like, like Billy Graham did or Billy Sunday or Louis Palau or any of those folks, they, they turned the model of the church on its ear. And they made the, the, the local church, on a Sunday morning anyway, a, a place for evangelism. And they still call it worship, but it is a place for evangelism in that particular model. Instead of using the giftedness that they've been given to the glory of God in the arena in which it should have been used, they created a model of a local church that fit their particular giftedness. And they malign in writing those who possess the gift of pastor-teacher and make an honest effort to function within the biblical structure of the local church. What they did was exchange instruction for entertainment. Now, to be frank with you, and to be open with you, um, this trend would have been easier to handle had Bill Hybels and Rick Warren simply set up Willow Creek and Saddleback in the way that they felt that they were led to do and ministered to their local congregations for the glory of God. If that would have been done in, in that way, it would have been easier to take. But that's not what they did. They both wrote books that were bestsellers, promoting their model, and then, unfortunately, condemning the traditional model. Now, please, I hope you understand, because I know many of you are, are fans of uh, perhaps Pastor Warren or even Bill Hybels. This is, uh, I'm not speaking against them personally. But it has come to the point in time in First Timothy where we're talking about the local church and how a local church should function. And, um, and their, their view is, is completely antithetical to mine. The, the problem is, people, people might say too, well, well, why can't you just keep your mouth shut and move on? I would love to. But the problem is, these two folks are extremely dynamic They've got the public stage. One of them is being called America's pastor now. And I don't, I don't mind the America's part, but call him America's evangelist, if you prefer. But the, the, part, that, the part that is dangerous is not, is not so much them setting up their individual local churches in any way that they should choose. What, what they do at Saddleback is Saddleback's business. It's not mine. But condemning those who follow a traditional model, now we've got a problem. And now, as much as I don't like to use people's names, uh, we must. And if you have read their material, you would know how vicious it is. It doesn't seem that way. You know, the goatee and all that, the, the sweaters, it, it seems really, really nice. But when you're charting a new course, and you have voices in the background that say, wait a, wait a second, Rick, that's not, that's, not, that's not the scriptural model. You either have to adapt your course, or you have to come hard at the people that are saying that. And this is what they've chosen to do. So there's a real battleground in, uh, in Christianity today. Um, they've uh, even recently become more aggressive, not less aggressive. You would think their success, or the, uh, and I have to put that in quotes, but it's up to the Lord to decide. But you would think that that success would, would breed some sort of humility and some sort of, okay, you know, we won't come down so hard on the traditional model, but um, unfortunately they've becoming 
they're becoming more aggressive. And according uh, to Rick Warren, uh, those who practice, who minister in a, in a traditional context, and those churches who worship in a traditional context, are the problem in the Christian community today. Now, you think what you want to about it. Those are the facts. And all you got to do is read it. I'm not making it up. I wish I was. This is not sour grapes. This is, this is what we face in Christianity today. Two competing models. Um, now, please understand. Please understand. I'm not knocking evangelism. Heaven forbid, meganoito. <laughs> That's the last thing that I want to do. Evangelism is, is part of the job of the local church, but in, in a biblical model, it's the job of the local church to go outside to do it. Um, of course the gospel should be given on Sunday morning. I do it. I do it. I, I, I work the gospel. At least it's designed that I work the gospel into every single message. Of course it is. But that's not the primary function. It is a function, but it's a secondary function. The model that God set up for worship on Sunday morning, for worship in the local church, is for believers. Believers sing praises to God. An unbeliever can't sing praises to someone he doesn't know. Believers give of our resources to God. If, if there are unbelievers on Sunday morning, I pray they don't give any money. You know why? I said, I said one time, I said, if you're an unbeliever and you've given money this morning, make sure you let Henry know on the way out, and he will give you your money back. And, and Henry started getting weak and he like, I mean, Rod had to hold him up. You know. But uh, I meant it, though. We don't, we don't want the, the money for an unbeliever. You know why I don't want that money? Because I don't want them for one th- second thinking that, that giving that money made them any closer to God. We can get plenty of money from those who are believers. Thank you very much. It's God's money. He'll bring it. We don't need to accept money from unbelievers. Not knowingly. And we don't knowingly accept money from unbelievers. Early in the church. Early in the church. Maybe in the second or third year, I had a, a close friend by the name of Lee. Lee was a fairly wealthy man, and he came to me one day and said, Is your church a, a kind of an organization that, we, that people can give money to uh, that uh, would be tax deductible? <laughs> I said, You bet it is. And he said, Well, that's great. I've got some friends that have a lot of money we need to dump somewhere at the end of the year. Well, you know, I'm going to talk about it. We need to dump it somewhere. We'll just dump it in your, uh, your church if that's okay. And I said, it would be great. And I assume, Lee, that these guys are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, uh, what? I said, you know, people who have trusted Christ uh, to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. And he said, well, I, I wouldn't think so. And uh, I still feel the same sinking feeling right now. <laughs> and I said, Lee, uh, Lee we, couldn't, uh, we couldn't accept their donations. You see, because it meant more to me to tell Lee that you can't buy your way to heaven than it would be to have that two or three million dollars, whatever it is they wanted to give. So they really did. Believers, believers give. That's a privilege for believers, not for unbelievers. Uh, believers pray. The only prayer that is going to be heard of an unbeliever is the prayer for salvation. That's it. Uh, believers honor God by participating in communion. If you don't know somebody, you can't remember him. And believers are instructed in the things of God and equipped to do the work of the ministry. Now, this, this movement has seeds that go back over 125 years. This is not just the, the brainchild of, of these two men, and they are my brothers in Christ. I want to stress that to you. Uh, they do a fine job in evangelism by all accounts. They do a fine job. 
Uh, but the seeds of the movement go back over 125 years. In, in, in fact, it has roots that go back to the 19th and the early 20th centuries. Uh, J. Grisham Mason, for example, and uh, Louis Perry Chafer both warned against something similar that was occurring in the 1920s in America. And C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, saw a shift occurring in England in the late 1800s. He, had, he observed churches setting aside biblical instruction. This is in the late 1800s. They were setting aside biblical instruction in favor of entertainment. And never one to keep silent when it was appropriate to say something. He responded in this now classic sermon. I don't read you the whole sermon, only the pertinent part. I wish I could read it as Spurgeon presented it, but bear with me. He said, An evil resides in the professed camp of the Lord so gross in its impudence that the most short-sighted can hardly fail to notice it. During the past few years, it has developed at an abnormal rate, evil for evil. It has worked like leaven into the whole lump ferments. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. From speaking out as the Puritans did, the church gradually has toned down her testimony, then winked at and excused the frivolities of the day. Then... She tolerated them in her borders. Now she has adopted them under the plea of reaching the masses. My first contention is that providing amusement for the people is nowhere spoken of in the scriptures as a function of the church. If it is a Christian work, why did Christ not speak of it? Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's clear enough. So it would have been if he has added, and provide amusement for those who do not relish the gospel. No such words, however, are to be found. It did not seem to occur to him. Then again, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers for the work of the ministry. Where do entertainers come in? The Holy Spirit is silent concerning them. Were the prophets persecuted because they amused the people or because they refused? The concert has no martyr role. Again, providing amusement is in direct antagonism to the teaching and the life of Christ and all the disciples. What was the attitude of the church to the world? You are salt. Not sugar candy, something the world will spit out, not swallow. Short and sharp was the utterance. Let the dead bury their dead. He was in awful earnestness. Had Christ introduced more of the bright and pleasant elements into his mission, he would have been more popular when they went back because of the searching nature of his teaching. I do not hear him say, run after these people, Peter, and tell them we will have a different style of service tomorrow, something short and attractive with little preaching. We will have a pleasant evening for the people. Tell them they will be sure to enjoy it. Be quick, Peter. We must get the people in somehow. Jesus pitied sinners, sighed and wept over them, but never sought to amuse them. In vain will the epistles be searched to find any trace of gospel amusement. Their message is, come out, keep out, keep clean out. Anything approaching fooling is conspicuous by its absence. They had boundless confidence in the gospel and employed no other weapon. 
After Peter and John were locked up for preaching, the church had a prayer meeting, but they did not pray, Lord, grant thy servants that by a wise and discriminating use of innocent recreation, we may show these people how happy we are. If they ceased not for preaching Christ, they had no time for arranging entertainments. Scattered by persecution, they went everywhere preaching the gospel. They turned the world upside down. That is the difference. Lord, clear the church of all the rot and rubbish the devil has imposed on her and bring us back to apostolic methods. Lastly, and I still quote Spurgeon, lastly, the mission of amusement fails to affect the end it desires. It works havoc among young converts. Let the careless and the scoffers who thank God because the church met them halfway speak and testify. Let the heavy laden who found peace through the concert not keep silent. Let the drunkard to whom the dramatic entertainment has been God's link in their chain of conversion stand up. There are none to answer. The mission of amusement produces no converts. The need of the hour for today's ministry is believing scholarship joined with earnest spirituality, the one springing from the other as fruit from the root. The need is biblical doctrine, so understood and felt that it sets men on fire. And that was 125 years ago. It could almost have been written as an op-ed piece in Christianity today. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, I, the more I read of him, the more I see why. Now, verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. In view of the context, Paul was evidently thinking in these verses probably more of the local church than he was the universal church as he speaks of us as a household and a pillar. The first figure is common in Paul's writing, the figure of a house or household. The local church is a family of believers. It should, therefore, conduct its corporate life as a family rather than a bu- as a business or a country club or as an entertainment center or as a military group or any other organization. The church is a family. For better or for worse, the church is a family. And sometimes that's better. And sometimes it's tougher. Because a family... <laughs> A family is supposed to be getting along, aren't they? There's not supposed to be any members of the family that are more important than other members. When one member of the family hurts, the other members of the family are supposed to hurt with them. When one rejoices, the whole family should rejoice. When one is sick, the rest of the family gets on their knees and prays. The church is not a business. I know there are business aspects to the church. There are checks to be written, rents to be paid, electricity that has to be taken care of. There are business aspects, but don't ever think that the church is a business. In fact, I, I, I try to be, even be careful with this around my kids. And, you know, well, where are you going, Dad? I, I don't like saying I'm going to work. Sometimes I mess up and say that, but I don't go to work. I go to the church, I go to ministry, I go to write a sermon, I go to visit with somebody, I go to have lunch with somebody. I'm not going to work. This is not a business. Not that there's anything wrong with businesses. Uh, Of course there's not. But the church is not a business. The church is a family. And there's structure in the family, there's structure in the church. And the more people in a family that are getting along, the more people in a family that are pulling in the same direction, the more effective that family is going to be in whatever they choose to do. He's not here. I believe he's now made the final move up to East Texas, so I'd like to use him as an illustration. Many of you remember my friend Charles Pyle. 
one of the neatest guys that we've ever had come to the church, one of the original founding members of the church, in fact. Cindy and I were invited over to Charles Pyle's house one Christmas. Remember that? And it was the most incredible thing when we went over there. I have never seen uh, that large of a family functioning in that, in that way. Everybody was getting along. And it was the neatest thing. They were all singing hymns. They were all exchanging stories. And, uh, and when they had fun, they had fun together. A few years, fast forwarding a few years, I was at the same room uh, with the same family. And everybody in the room was very somber-faced. For Charles's brother, it was just a couple weeks from death. And the same family that was rejoicing together a few years earlier now was mourning together. And there was not a, a dry eye in the place. In fact, I think that's why Charles is moving up to East Texas. I just don't think he can, he can handle it down here anymore. He needs to be back up there where the family is, is tight and where they're all together. But the closer a family is, the, the better the Thanksgiving dinner is going to be, the better the Christmas time, and you won't dread it. You'll look forward to it. It's the same way with a church. A church is not a business church is a family. Now, the second figure of the local church is perhaps uh, the one that you've, you've, you understand me to be stressing. We've stressed the family aspect of the local church before. But Paul says that the second figure is that of a pedestal that supports something set on top of it. Each local church is designed to function as a support of the truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. In the context here, the truth referenced is biblical teaching, God's gracious self-revelation. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I, I know you've heard that. Some of you have heard it a bunch of times. Some of you had that memorized, didn't you? Have, you? have you paused to think about it lately? All scriptures God breathed. All scriptures profitable. All scriptures profitable for doctrine, but not just so that we can learn the truth, but for reproof, for correction, so that it can change our lives. If there's something that we're doing wrong and we're objective about it, we need to turn the other direction so it can change our lives. For instruction in righteousness, just like here, this will come up in the next epistle, uh, next pastoral epistle, but we're skipping ahead. For instruction in righteousness, why? That the man of God, that's you and me, the man is their generic, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Without the truth, we're not equipped. And way too many believers are trying to do God's work apart from God's revelation. And they're failing miserable. They're wonderful people. They're, they're uh, in many cases, um, perhaps uh, very moral people. But you can't do God's work apart from God's self-revelation. It doesn't work that way but in case I'm delayed I write to you so that you know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God now Paul's been talking about that in the first two chapters in fact this is a bit of a hinge paragraph he's, he's not concluding all the information about con, uh, conduct in the household of God he's, he's really in the middle of it but now he's, he's paused at the heart of this epistle and he's saying the reason I'm telling you all this is because there's a certain behavior expected of you you know, it's not all y'all, y'all come free. It's not whatever you want to do. It's not, listen, I'm free. I, I'm, I'm the boss of me. Remember I used to say that when you were kids? And then nothing could be further from the truth. I'm the boss of me. You're what? You're not boss of anybody, especially you. And we're not the boss of me either. Did you know that? Maybe this is, maybe this is new. You're not the boss of you. Now, don't look at me. I'm not the boss of you either. God's the boss of you, to use that 
child's phrase. I do know the correct grammar. <laughs> God is your boss. God is your sovereign. God is your Lord. And so he's got rules and regulations. That's not legalism. That's obedience. That's love. Christ said, if you love me, you'll obey me. You want to show him you love him? Figure out what he said we should be doing and do it. It's not really hard. That's what we should do. Verse 16, his mention of this message of truth led Paul to glorify the whole concept of truth, but particularly truth personified in a person. By common Christians, by common confession rather, among Christians, this mystery of godliness is great. Or if you prefer, this mystery of spirituality is great. How is this going to happen? Now, mystery here was something unknown in times past that was now known in this dispensation. It's a mystery that has been made known by special revelation in the New Testament. We will see that someday when we study the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. It's a mystery of godliness that leads to and results in godliness in those who accept it. It is great in its preeminent importance and worldwide scope. So now Paul evidently quotes what, what was a hymn back in ancient times. And we have several, uh, several lines from it. Um, I remember, it, I, I don't know if Will remembers this or not, but I remember coming by your desk one time, I believe in the, in the library at Dallas Seminary, and I, I believe it was Will, one of the Ph.D. students, was working on hymn, uh, hymns, Christian hymns or fragments that were in the in New Testament. Wasn't that you working on that? That's what I thought. It Was this one of the ones you worked on? Okay. And um, I'm glad I remember at least that much. But, but uh, th- there, are certain, there are certain hymns, that, that particularly the Apostle Paul, that were, that were well known of the day, and he would borrow them and put them into his letters. And now they've been forever canonized in their scripture. They, they were good enough theology, he didn't have to change them up, at least as far as we can tell. But he evidently quotes a fragment from a hymn here, or perhaps it perhaps can be a, a statement of the apostolic church that he's using to summarize the message, but it appears to be a, a fragment of a hymn because of its concise, it has some rhythmic parallelism, and even in its original language, it's perhaps even more rhythmic than what we read here. These three couplets depict Jesus Christ as the essence of this mystery and view his work as completed. God revealed Jesus Christ in the flesh in his incarnation, and the Holy Spirit vindicated his claims in his resurrection. He who was revealed in the flesh. Now, some of your Bibles might say in verse 16, a God uh, who was revealed in the flesh. But um, it's generally agreed that these were later manuscripts that inserted this word God, perhaps because they wanted to make sure that, that everybody understood Jesus Christ was God, but we don't need to insert things. And the earlier and the better manuscripts just have the word He, and we're left to understand that this is Jesus Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit. And this vindication most likely is being referred to here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Had Jesus Christ not been raised from the dead, he would have been just another prophet. He would have been, in fact, based upon the things that he said, he would have been found to be a false prophet. Because he said he was God, he staked his entire ministry on the fact that he would be crucified in Jerusalem and resurrected three days later. Now, you remember, I don't guess she's around much anymore, but you remember back a lady by the name of Jean Dixon? Uh, some of you do. Every year, you'd have in the National Enquirer or some one of those rags that's, uh, that's in, the, in the checkout stand, you'd have Gene Dixon's predictions for that particular year. 
You know, there will be earthquakes in Indonesia. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor, not ours, but the other one's going to get married again. You know, I mean, things where you really were really stepping out on a limb, Gene was. And, and so sometimes they came true. It's going to be hot in Texas in the summertime. Wow, <laughs> you know, that's really good. I'm going to be crucified in Jerusalem on the Passover and be raised from the dead three days later. Now, that's a pretty astounding claim. And if it happens, he should be believed. Now, if it didn't happen, we should discard him. But there's, uh, there's ample. As a matter of fact, there's overwhelming evidence that that happened. It's one of the most historically attested events that we have from antiquity. He was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Jesus was God revealed Jesus Christ in flesh, in, in his human nature, in his incarnation, and the Holy Spirit vindicated his claims in his resurrections. Angels saw and worshipped him following his resurrection and ascension into heaven, and his disciples proclaimed him to all the people through the worldwide spreading of the gospel. Those who accept the gospel on earth believe on him, and God received and exalted him in glory following his ascension. So he was vindicated by the Spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then taken up in glory. Uh, this presents the work of Christ uh, as comprehensive in time. From his incarnation on, Jesus Christ is the most important figure in human history. There is no other and in fact, you'll be hard-pressed to find many honest historians that would bring up another name. I remember there was a list that came out a few years back. I've forgotten who did it. Was it Time Magazine or one of, one of those publications? And someone listed the most important figures in human history, and Jesus Christ was not first. I think it was second or third. I think Muhammad was even uh, listed above Jesus Christ. That's not academic honesty. That's, that's intellectual dishonesty. I'm not talking about people who are believers in Jesus Christ. I'm just talking about as a, as a human figure. There is no one who has ever walked this earth who has been more influential than Jesus Christ. Nobody. Nobody. Including Muhammad. Including, I believe, Gutenberg was one of the ones that was up there as well. And, and none of them. Even just on a human level. But this man who was that powerful just on a human level was vindicated in that he was who he said he was. Isn't this a great hymn? <laughs> I, I wish someone, maybe somebody has. If, if they have, you'll have to let me know and we'll sing it. I wish somebody put that to, word, uh, to music, those words to music, and, and, um, and we'll sing it. Perhaps somebody already has. So the movement of thought in this hymn is alternately from the earthly realm to heavenly, back to earthly, and then back to heavenly. The structure emphasizes Christ's work in space. He's brought together the earthly and heavenly spheres in his existence. He has reconciled human beings to God. Specifically, the bridges, he's bridged the gap between things that have always been poles apart. The physical and the spiritual, angels and the Gentiles, and the world and heaven. The heart of the epistle reads like this. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that, you ought to, so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and supporter of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's Jesus Christ. 
Without him, there is no church. Without him, there is no reason to meet. Without him, we have nothing to proclaim. But with him, we have every reason to meet. With him, we have every reason to give and to sing and to fall on our knees and worship. It all revolves around him. The Apostle Paul cannot speak about the concept of truth without then bringing up that truth personified, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, in summary, is the household of the living God. Let us function in the way that God has ordained, supporting the truth and faithfully proclaiming it.